Let's pray that God would help us as we look at his word tonight and understand this because there's a profound truth in what we have to see. Let's pray together. Father God, as we have heard your word read tonight, we want to thank you for the privilege of hearing the creator of the universe speak to us. We pray that we would see the world as you see it. We would see ourselves as you see us. And that by your spirit, you would do your work tonight. For those of us who are checking you out, Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself clearly. For those of us who are tired, we'd ask that you'd awaken us to the truth. For those of us that are excited, we pray that you would help us to keep seeing what we're excited about and to focus our vision with what you have to show us tonight. We pray you would work through this word to change us into the likeness of your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whether you know it or not, the choices that you make in life, the decisions that you take, what you do and what you don't do are all shaped by your view of the end. Your view of the end shapes the way that you make choices, what you do and how you do it. It doesn't matter if your view of the end is the, the end of your life or the end of the world. Our view of the end profoundly shapes how we live. See, if there is only one life and this is it, this is all we have, the, the moments that are in front of us right now, then we kind of feel this drive within us to make this life count. YOLO, right? You only live once. And so we're going to do all that we can to get the most out of life, to milk it for, for happiness and joy, and as much as we can, we're going to live for the here and now. Every decision that we make in life will be seen by what brings us the most amount of happiness. Because our view of the end profoundly shapes the way we live. Our moral compasses, they're guided by our view of the end as well. If we think that we are the final judge and arbiter of life, that we are the ones who will kind of work out, well, what really matters in life is what I have done, then we'll live to what pleases us, whether that be something that lines up with others' morals, whether it's immoral or amoral, we will choose to live, we will live in ways that the end has shaped what is right and wrong. But if there is more to life than the here and now, if, if something happens when we die, if there is a God, if there is some absolute truth, then it dramatically affects the way that we live, doesn't it? It dramatically affects who will judge what has been right or not right, what is, what is the best way to live and what isn't. Whether you like it or not, your view of the end shapes every step you take, every decision you make. So I want you to stop for a moment and think, how does your view of the end affect the way you live today? How does your view of the end affect what you'll do tonight and tomorrow? How does it shape who you are as a person? Well, in Luke's story of Jesus, we've just seen so far through the eyes of a blind man what no one else around could see. That this Jesus, he, he was a miracle worker. The blind were able to see, the lame walk, people followed him round. He was, he was a great teacher. Everyone was amazed at his teaching. He was a moral leader. But what we saw more than all those three things is that he was the king of kings. That's what this blind man saw. Jesus was not just a king of any small country or any small area. The claim of Scripture is that Jesus was the king over all kings. 
He's the one who made the universe, who made you. And we need to recognize who he is. He is the one to whom you and I and everyone who has ever lived will have to give an account. That's what Luke has just shown us. And at this point in time, the disciples, Jesus' closest friends, those that were following him along, they have a wrong view of the end. And that view of the end changes the way that they think. See, they've been following Jesus from the beginning, hearing him speak of this kingdom that he would bring in and, and thinking somehow he would be the king. They're, they're onto a good thing, if you think about it, right? You've been following this guy around. This guy says to the wind and the waves, stop, and they do. I would have loved that power, just tonight, on the way here, to say, stop, rain, and it would have stopped, and it wouldn't have to change shirts. How great would that be? You're following this guy around who says to a lame man, get up and walk, to a blind man, have sight, and he sees. You're like, this is great. Like, this is the, this, I want to be this guy's wingman or wingwoman, right? And so these, these disciples have been following him around, thinking they're onto a good thing. Jesus told them he's going to Jerusalem, and they know the prophecies that have been spoken in Zechariah and Isaiah about um, God's king coming to rule. And so in their minds, they're thinking, Jesus is going to waltz on into Jerusalem, take up his place on the, on the throne, and rule the kingdom forever. It's like all their dreams have come true. They're excited. Problem is, they've got a short-term view of the end. A short-term view of the end. Have a listen to verse 11 of Luke 19. As the disciples were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they, the disciples, thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Now, if you thought Jesus was the king and you thought he's about to walk into Jerusalem, imagine it's like Auckland, you know, we're right on the outskirts. He's, he's about to walk in, he's here to now, tonight, to now, it's a new one. He's here tonight and he's about to walk into Jerusalem what would you do? How would you act? How would you use the time you have? He's about to do it right now. Well, there's not much you can do, right? You're about to walk into the CBD, it's just down the hill. This is the moment that you've hit the proverbial jackpot. You've picked the guy who's going to be the king. It's like you've kind of pulled the kind of poker wheel of life and all your numbers have lined up and the sirens are going off and you hear the cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching of all the goods coming in and you're like, this is the life because you think the king has come, because you've got this short-term view of the end. All you need to do is collect your winnings, sit back, and enjoy the kingdom forever. And that's kind of the view that these disciples had. They thought the kingdom of God was about to come in straight away, right now, and they were about to enjoy its blessings. Sometimes in the Christian life, we have this view of Jesus. We see what he's done, the promises that he's given, um, the blind healed, the lame walking, eternal life offered. And we kind of expect that if we come to Jesus today, that that will be our life tomorrow. We have this short-term view of the kingdom. We think that we'll receive all his blessings now. You hear the Bible speak of, of healing and, and freedom and peace and prosperity. And we're excited by this. It's like, all the numbers have come up in one. We hear the siren bells ringing and the cha-ching, cha-ching, ching and we think, this is it. Christianity is it. Now, I know there's heaven coming a bit later, but really all heaven is is like the home to bring my bling. I get all the bling from the Christian life, everything working brilliantly, I just roll on into heaven and park it up in my mansion. Sometimes that's the view that we have of Christianity. It's kind of like the cruise liner view of Christianity. You know why people go on cruise liners? They sit back and relax and have a break. 
We think Christianity, come to Jesus, your life will be like a cruise liner. You sit on the deck with a nice chair and a martini in your hand. You'll enjoy the, the ship called the Star of the Sea called Jesus. You know, the Star of David, maybe. Call it that. And everyone's excited by this kind of journey. And we're like, this is great. It's taking us to our holiday destination. Christianity is about just the, the best life now, a life of prosperity. Legs up, live it up. We love the Christian life. We kind of forget, though, that there's a captain driving the ship. We're totally oblivious to the world around us who might be sinking or on islands without food. or There's a whole heap of issues going on, but we don't care. Because we're on the cruise ship life. We're coming into the kingdom. So to correct the disciples' short-term view of the end, and to correct our short-term view, Jesus tells this parable. Now, parables, they're, they're not kind of true stories. And don't come through and think that there was really a guy and a nobleman who traveled to a country and there were these 10 people. They're stories that sometimes use illustrations from the world around us, but to help us understand a point. They're illustrations to make a point. So as we come to this story, we need to ask, what is Jesus illustrating with this parable? So let's have a look, verse 12 of chapter 19. Therefore Jesus said, A nobleman traveled to a far country, to receive for himself authority to be a king, and then return. He called ten of his slaves and gave them ten miners, one each, and told them, engage in business until I come back. Now to us, sitting here in modern-day Auckland, we hear this story and it doesn't mean much. There was some dude, went away to be king, he's going to come back, had some servants, gave them some money, we're like, yeah, cool, I kind of get it. But there's more going on in this story than what first meets the eye. Does anyone kind of think, oh yeah, I've got an idea of what's going on here, I know the backstory, any kind of idea? Okay, if you were at morning church this morning, put your hand down. <laughs> See, let me ask you this question. How many people here have heard of Archelaus? Head up, except if you're at morning church this morning. Archelaus. We haven't heard of this guy called Archelaus, but everyone who was hearing this parable had heard of this guy called Archelaus. Archelaus had a dad and his name was King Herod the Great. Heard of him? He was the king in charge when, when Jesus was a baby. Herod died, and his son, Archelaus, wanted to take over as king, but the problem was he had a brother, and his brother, Antipas, he was also given in the will to take over the rulership of his father. The problem is, if you've got two people, they can't be king. There can only be one king. And so, Caesar Augustus gave both Antipas and Archelaus the title Tetrarch. Ever heard of Herod the Tetrarch? He's talking about... Archelaus. Archelaus was given this title, but he wanted to be king, because who doesn't want to be king, right? You're like, ah, oh, I really want this. And so he gets a delegation together uh, and kind of goes to Rome to speak to Caesar Augustus, brings his mother with him for the kind of sob story that they have on all those kind of reality TV shows, you know, this is what's going on, and brings this whole company with him, thinking that he's going to put a case before Rome for him to be called king and his brother to be booted out. And what happens is, about 50 Jews stand up and go, we don't like this guy. He sucks. We don't want him to be ruler over us. He's just killed 3,000 people. He's not a very nice man at all. And so Caesar says, no, you can't be king. Everyone who hears this parable in the first century recognizes this is a front page story of the Herald. The king who tried to be king, who went away to be king, and came back as half-baked. There's kind of some words ringing around in our head, but this time, in this story that Jesus tells, there's a very different end. Look at verse 15. At, this, at his return, this man, this nobleman, at his return, having received the authority to be king, it's different, 
he summoned those slaves he had given the money to so he could find out how much they had made in business. This king, the king Jesus talks about in this parable, is very, very different to Archelaus, to the kind of backstory on the herald that we've heard about so far. This king would come back crowned as king of kings and lord of lords. And that meant a few things for the people. Number one, these people who were thinking with a short-term view that Jesus would arrive in Jerusalem and kingship would come on high and the, the kind of confetti would rain from the ceiling, winner, you've won, had a short-term view of the kingdom. There would be time when he was gone. There would be a gap when this king had gone away and will come back again. Jesus is helping to correct the disciples' short-term view of the end. But secondly, he tells this parable to help us to realize how you live when the king is gone matters. How you live when the king is gone matters. I've called it the merry middle. The bit in the middle when the king was here and he's gone, or the nobleman who's gone away to be enthroned king and is coming back. We're calling this time the merry middle. Why? Because we're all happy. Who knows if he's coming back or not? We're just going to do whatever we want. We, we live life merrily. Sometimes we forget him gone away. Other times we listen. The, the temptation here that he's correcting is the opposite to the short-term view. It's the view that says, oh, the king's gone, but you know what? In this merry middle time, he's probably not going to come back for ages. Just live, just drink, eat, be happy, live your life to the fullest enjoyment. You will love it. You don't need to worry about that king coming back. It's probably like Archelaus anyway. Is he going to come back? And if he is, he's going to be some half-baked religious kind of figure. Archelaus came back. He was never king. Eventually, he got deposed. He got banished to Gaul, wherever that is. Doesn't sound very nice, does it? Banish someone to Gaul. I don't know, it sounds like some salivary, sweaty place that's not nice at all. But he got banished to Gaul, which is probably France for those of you, you know. Yep, I know. <laughs> Sorry if you're French. I think frogs are awesome. Um, <laughs> they taste great. He got banished to Gaul. And for many people, that's your view of Jesus too. There was this guy, he lived once, lived and breathed, did some stuff, did some amazing things. He might have had some impact on history, but he's not coming back again. Or if he does, he's coming back in the imagination of some religious freaks. And, you know, it really doesn't impact how I live today. Your view of the end matters, doesn't it? But the king in Jesus' parable comes back. And the instructions he left for those who are in the merry middle matter greatly. Some have simply forgotten what he said. But now, those instructions are called in. Have a look at verse 15. At his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those slaves he'd given the money to, so he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your miner has earned ten more miners. Well done, good slave, he told him. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. Now, a miner was probably about uh, three months' wages. It was one coin, three months' wages. Pretty cool coin, right? For some of us, it's like a $5 note. That's all we earn. For others, it's bigger, but it, it's, it's a three, three months' wages. And what he receives is authority to rule 10 towns. That, that's phenomenally large compared to what he had been given at the start. Verse 18, the second came and said, Master, your miner has made five miners. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. I want us to see for a moment the character of this king. He is a good king. 
He is a king that loves his subjects disproportionately. The reward that he gives them is not really just a reward, but it is just so overwhelmingly generous. Ten cities, five cities, for just being faithful and investing this coin that I've given you. Now, lots of people come along and they say, what are these miners? What are they for us today? What is Jesus talking about? And some people kind of see the parallel with Matthew 25. It's called the parable of the talents. And they call the miners, the, the, the amounts of things that were given out, the talents that we've, re- we've received. You know, that word, oh, what are your talents? You know, the talent show. Well, that's, in other words, it's talking about the gifts that we have. <laughs> some people view this, this miner that has been given as the gifts that we have been given. And we need to invest the gifts that we've been given uh, into God's kingdom. We need to use the resources that we have, these miners, and invest them well. But I want to put it to us tonight that I don't think they are just gifts. I think the miner that they are given is the news of the gospel. It's the news that the king has come. Jesus has been talking about the spread of the kingdom, that the king is here. That's what Luke's been showing us. And why I think it's the, 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 the gospel rather than the gifts is, when the parable of the talents, each person is given a different amounts and different gifts. But in this parable, which I think is a different parable, by the way, um, they're given the same thing, the same one coin. And so, what I think is on view here is saying, there is something that is given to you that is going to bear fruit. Now, you notice in verse 16 that it's not the talents of the people that make it fruitful. Have a look carefully. Slow down and, and let's, let's let the Bible shape our view of this parable. Verse 16, he says this, Your miner had earned ten more miners. This first servant said, Your miner, the coin you gave me, this thing that you gave me, it earned ten more miners. It was the miner that did the work. It wasn't the person, nor their gifts or abilities. It was this Whatever it was, this deposit that was given, the king's coin did the work. All the servant had to do was be faithful in investing it. The miner did the work. What's rewarded is the servant's faithfulness with the miner. He trusted the king's word, he did what the king said, and the king's miner did its work. I want to put it to you tonight that what is on view here is the news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension. What has been given by the king is the news that Jesus is the king, that he has come and he has died, will die in our place, that he's risen again, and that he will come back, and that we are to use that gospel deposit to see that news spread like wildfire, to see more miners, more gospel spreading across the world. Another reason why I don't think it's gifts is because the gifts don't kind of replicate and there's more and more and more gifts, <laughs> but the gospel does, to the end of the word, uh, earth. The other side of the world, even in New Zealand, we get to hear this news of this King. So I think there's a temptation for us to think that the great ones in God's kingdom are the ones who've got all the great gifts. The ones that are like, you know, they're at the start of the line when God was handing out the gifts. They've got great brain power, they understand multiple languages, they've got this brilliant memory, and you think, you know, they're the great ones. But the key in this parable is not the servant. It's not his gifts or talents, but the faithfulness to trust the king that his gift of the gospel will do its work. That's what's celebrated. The faithfulness of this servant. Every believer 
Every person who trusts in Jesus has received the same investment capital. It's not that some of us have got more and some of us have got less. We've been given this deposit of the news of Jesus, the gospel. We've been entrusted with this gospel coin. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, Martin Luther, John Calvin, George, Whitfield, Billy Graham, all of them received the same gospel deposit. We have no advantage or disadvantage over them. We have received, if we trust in Jesus, the same news of this King and what He has done and who He is. Rowan Hilston, you know, Mark, Andrew, Ash, George. Is there a George here? <laughs> you know, those who trust in Jesus, us, have got the same gospel deposit as the Apostle Paul, as Martin Luther, as George Whitfield. We have been entrusted by the King with the gospel that will bear fruit. Will we be faithful with it? If you are a servant of the King, He has given you life-saving knowledge of who Jesus is and what He's done. And that knowledge will change the world. That knowledge, if we share it, will have an impact on the ages and ages and ages to come. But while the King is away, it's our role to be faithful, to live in response to the message of the kingdom. Not to sit back and cross our, our arms and legs and drink martinis on the star of the sea of David called Jesus, but to invest in this news of the gospel, to increase the gospel yield. This parable is not about giftedness, but investing the news of who Jesus is and what he's done. But as we get to the end of the parable, there is this one, this third servant, who takes up basically the rest of the parable. And we see he had a very different response to the first two. Come with me and have a look. Verse 20. And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. I have kept it hidden away in a cloth because I was afraid of you. For you're a tough man and you collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you did not sow. Here this servant is probably a man who's not really trusting that this nobleman would come back as a king. He didn't believe him. And so he just kind of took the coin, he didn't lose it, didn't spend it frivolously, didn't spend it on himself. He's like, I'm just going to tuck it away, whatever, blah, blah, I'm just going to hold on to it. You know, I'm kind of a servant of the king, I'm just going to get on with life. And so I've wrapped it up so safely. Uh, throughout college, we had, um, at Bible college, we, we had to read through uh, two volumes of work from a guy called John Calvin, called Calvin's Institutes. And we had to sign this thing at the end of our time that said that we had um, read through carefully read Calvin's Institutes. And a mate of mine said, you know what, I've been so careful with my reading of the Institutes, I didn't even take it out of the wrapper. No, it's funnier than that, come on. <laughs> That's exactly what this guy has done. I've been so careful with your coin and investing it well, I've wrapped it up and here you go, I've not invested it at all. But we start to hear the reason why. It's not that he didn't know where to invest it. He says, I know what you're like. You're, you're the type of king, this man, you're a tough man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. You, you see fruit come out of all sorts of places and you, you're a harsh man. And so I was worried about you and so the, the worry of you coming back and was just all too much, so I just wrapped it up. Basically, it's your fault. You know? Eve made me do it. He blames the king for his lack of investment. How often in life do we blame God? You weren't clear enough. You didn't reveal yourself enough to me. 
If you'd only told me more clearly what you wanted to do, then maybe, maybe I'd come to you. If you'd only make yourself clearer. If you told me plainly that you were coming back, there's not enough evidence. The man blames the king. He doesn't see the king who is gracious and generous, who rewards beyond whatever he had given out, who's exponentially generous, who gives what people didn't deserve. He sees him as hard and unjust and blames it on the king. But deep down, he had failed to recognize who this nobleman was. He didn't think he was coming back. Like the story of Archelaus, he thought he was a bit of a no-hoper, a bit of a guy that wanted more than he really could. He thought he had a better view of the world. He had a better view of who this nobleman was than the one who would be coronated as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that was a grave mistake to not take this king at his word. Listen with me from verse 22. Listen to the king's response in the parable. He told him, I will judge you by what you have said, you evil slave. He doesn't judge him by the reality of what went on. He just judges him by what he has said with his words. Listen, if you knew I was a tough man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why didn't you put your money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. Now, this is not an advertisement for banking, okay? You don't go home and think, oh, great, what I should do with all my money is put it in the bank. That's what Jesus said. This is not what he's talking about. He's saying we need to listen to the king. For when the king comes back, we'll be held to account. So he said to those standing there, verse 24, take the miner away from him and give it to the one who has 10 miners. This slave, he has no real relationship with the king. He doesn't rate him. Maybe he just went on with life and went, whatever, wrapped up the coin, he might come back. Nah. Maybe he, he used the coin as some sort of insurance policy. The king gave me a coin. Ooh, I'm special. And then just live life as he, as he kind of would. The news of Jesus, I've heard it, but it hasn't really affected my life much. I'm not really going to do much with this gospel. I'm not going to invest it anywhere. The king comes back. And what does he say to the slave? You are evil. That sounds harsh. He hasn't really been evil, has he? I mean, that's not evil. Not to kind of just, just not do what he said. It just shows, shows how flat we are in the way we view authority. We come along and we think, oh, it's, it's not too bad to disrespect authority. You know, the world's kind of flat, it's okay. Do not mistake this king. Do not mistake who he is. He is not giving suggestions about how to get the most out of life. He is saying, this is the news that changes the universe. This is the news that allows you to live. Have you seen this king? This passage is a warning to those of us here who serve King Jesus. It's a warning for us to take his kingdom investment seriously. How are you investing the gospel news that we have? How do you invest in the kingdom? It got me thinking through a number of different ways that we, we invest. Some of that is with time. Now, for lots of us, if we're students, we are time rich and money poor. Right? You come along, you're like, man, I've got five bucks. That's about it. I can't really, you know, buy a building for church. Love to, but can't. <laughs> you know, five dollars doesn't get us far. I've got all the time in the world. Now, I know when you're at uni, it doesn't feel like you've got all the time in the world. You're like, I've got assignments to hand in half of the year, then I'm on holidays the other half. Um, you know, there's kind of, I've got to work. I've got to work at that point. I've got to earn some money to be able to live, and I don't doubt that it's hard. 
But if God were to see our, our diaries, if we were to look at what we invest in, what time we spend, would that story tell God that our time is used to invest in kingdom advancement, in sharing the gospel deposit we have with others, who then get to share the gospel deposit with others, of, of seeing people come to know Jesus. You might not be someone that is kind of brilliant at explaining the gospel, but you might be able to kind of encourage others to, you might be great at reading, and so you've read some apologetic stuff, and you can help others be able to have good answers, or you can pray for others, you can use your time to support the work of kingdom work, to see God's kingdom spread over this world, that people might recognize Jesus is the king. How do you invest in the kingdom with your time? Not that the time is the minor. The minor is the gospel. But the time we spend using that gospel shows us where our hearts are. What about money? For many of us, time rich, money poor. How do we use the little we have? Firstly, I want to say, give. If you, if you give now when you have a small amount, then as you, as you kind of finish up university and as you head out into the workforce, you suddenly realize, oh, you, you, you've set up a good habit of investing in the kingdom. We don't give just so that we feel good. We give to the local church so that the news of Jesus might go out. Now, when you give more to church, it's not the pastors don't get any more. Our, our pay is fixed. When we give to the local church, we're freeing up resources to be used for the kingdom. And there's a number of different areas that we'd love to see more resources used in the kingdom. Uh, we're, we're starting these ministry apprenticeships. Uh, people like Ming and Angela and Ben and Ash and Ethan. And th- these guys are thinking through, should I invest my life in the kingdom? Well, one way we can use our money is to partner with them. To say, we think that they're an investment worthwhile. If, if you think that, you might look at some of them and think maybe they're not. We'll have that conversation with them. Because you want to be wise in your investment because it's about being shrewd for the kingdom about seeing kingdom returns. But if someone you think, you know, they've got the skills and abilities from what I see, I want to back them, then we get to share in the kingdom investment. Uh, And God willing, that number will grow. More and more people will come through and think, I want to have a a crack at this gospel ministry thing. I want to be freed up. And for some, we'll say, look, this looks great. There's there's a helpfulness to giving this a crack. For others, we'll say, no, I don't think this is for you. (laughs) There might be some areas you need to work on and go away and come back and sort through. That's fine. But use our money for the, for the spread of the kingdom in the local church, for others that we can support. Now, there's one thing I just want to spend a moment highlighting. Every month, we release on the second Sunday of the month the kind of giving figures from last month. It's on the back of your outline. Those who knew, you already turned over. Look at that. Good work. We want to be as transparent as possible because we want everyone to know what's going on in the church. Then when I say as transparent as possible, I mean totally transparent not just as possible. So you should always care about where the funds are being used that you're giving to the church. But on the back, it shows what our budget is for the month and how much people have given. Now, I want to say, in the last month in January, usually we expect that to be dropped. So our budget is normally around 36000 per month of what money is coming into church. You're like, whoa, that sounds heaps. Um, it costs about 400000 a year uh, to run church. Um, 36000 a month. Um, we usually drop it to around 30000 for January because people kind of pull back in January and not many people give... Can I just say, in January, church as a whole gave the highest it's ever given, $40,000. Now, that excites me because what that tells me is there's a bunch of people that are captivated by the spread of the kingdom. And they so see this news of Jesus going out across the city and people being involved in gospel proclamation as something they want to invest in, and so they give. 
I want to encourage you, if you're not giving, climb on board. Start partnering in what God is doing here amongst us. It's exciting to see. And for those that, that are giving, thank God for your generosity, for the money that He's entrusted to us. What a joy it is to partner together, to see people in this room who've become Christians, people in this room who stay Christians. There are so many areas that it would be great to do gospel ministry in that money holds us back from. How are you using your money? But it's not just time and money. It got me thinking, how do I invest my reputation for the spread of the kingdom? Like, as I think about my reputation and what others think about me, what do, they, what do they see as they see me? Am I hiding away the gospel deposit that God has given me? And so when others see me, they see me as someone who is competent, someone who is able, someone who is able to live this way. Or they see me as someone who's so captivated by Jesus that they want to tell the world around them about Him. How are you using your reputation to proclaim the kingdom so that others view you, they think, yes, there's someone sold out for living for something totally different. I want in. I want more. Who is this guy? Who is this girl? Do people who know you know without a shadow of a doubt that you live for King Jesus, that eternity is your home? And that you are free to live in the, the ups and downs of life now while we wait in this merry middle for Jesus to come back. That you are free to live knowing that your future is secure. How do you use your reputation for the spread of the kingdom? Another area, how do you use your words for the spread of the kingdom? There are another area that affects the way this gospel deposit works out. Well, if you were to kind of log all of your words for the day, for some of us it'll be small. For others of us, it would be large. What percentage of our words would be gospel-shaped words? Now, I don't mean, that, you know, in every conversation, you're like, oh, how are you doing, Rowan, today? In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> oh, good, thanks, in Jesus' name. You know, I don't mean go freaky out there and be like, whoa, you know, Jesus' name was said at the end of every sentence like an exclamation mark. No, that's just freaky. Don't do that. It just says you're a fruit loop, okay? But how much of what we say is shaped by the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Full of grace, seasoned with salt, different. How much do we use our words to point to the King and the Kingdom? Are you known as someone who speaks and acts in a way that is gracious, like our Father? Or are you known as someone who's judgmental, pulls down their, their condemnation on others? As people view you, do they view you as someone who is generous and kind, always seeking the good of others, like the Gospel does? Do they see you as someone who is filled full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control? Are the fruit of the Spirit evident in the way that we live? Has the gospel so impacted us that the way we invest it changes the way we speak? Perhaps it's time for us, in view of Jesus' parable tonight, to do an audit on our gospel investment. To look at our life and see how we are investing this news of Jesus in the world around us. And to prayerfully ask God, God, show me tonight, please, where I am holding back on investing the gospel for the sake of your kingdom. Show me where I'm, I'm investing the gospel of the kingdom of Rowan, or the kingdom of whoever, whatever your name is. If you're investing the kingdom of Rowan, it's real bad. Trust me, I've tried, it's shocking. But to ask God to show us where we are holding back from investing the deposit He's given us and to pray for wisdom. 
want to say we need to invest wisely, not just anywhere. Someone rocks up to you and says, oh, I want you to give me money so I can be a gospel investment. You don't just say, okay. You want to say, okay, well, what are the skills and abilities you have? How, do you actually know the gospel? How are you using the gospel in this investment? How will it bear fruit? Be shrewd. So I used to think that people who kind of gave away lots of money or lots of time were like so generous, super spiritual, extra crazy, brilliant Christians. But in the end, they're just investing in the best investment ever. You'd be stupid to just invest in the things of here and now that are going to burn and rot and rust and when Jesus comes back, won't go through death. But investing in things that last forever, that won't perish or spoil or fade, that are kept in heaven for us, well, that's just smart investment. How is the gospel being invested? How are you investing the gospel in the world around you? Well, as we think about our view of the end, there's one last bit that we skipped over that's phenomenally important for us to understand. It's the reality of the end. Some people kind of live life thinking that there will be no end. That's fine, and just we'll die, and that's it, that's the end. But part of the parable we skipped over was a bunch of people who really saw this nobleman and thought, there's no way I want him to be king. They weren't like the slaves who kind of went along with it. Uh, the slaves were um, subjects of the kingdom, uh, but they were also slaves of the king. We see there was another group of people who were subjects of the kingdom who did not want the king to be king. So in verse 14, we hear about these people who, in the beginning, did not want this man to be king, like the story of Archelaus. Have a look at verse 14. But his subjects hated him. They sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. Now, this is exactly what happened in the real-life story of Herod, the great son, Archelaus. This is what went on. A delegation went after him and pleaded with Caesar, don't let him be named king. This is the political context that Jesus is living in. He's using stories that they know, but with a twist. In the context of Jesus, there are many who do not want him to be king. There are many. They refuse to accept him as God's promised king. There are many who defy him, some of them actively. Kill this man, we don't want him, get rid of him. Others passively, ah, oh, just ignoring him, just living life without him. It reminds us of the world that we live in today. For there are many who may not know the king, may not be subject, sorry, may not be um, servants of the king, slaves of the king, but are subjects of his kingdom, if he is the king of kings and lord of lords, who are living in his world that really don't want him to be king. Some actively, Richard Dawkins, God is dead. It's a delusion. We don't want anything to do with him. There is no God. This is stupid. Others just kind of passively. You know, no offense. I just don't really live for that religious stuff. I don't really think that there'll be an end when he comes back. You know, I just, I just there is no Jesus as king. But Jesus tells us in this parable that everyone must live in light of the end, the reality of the end. The end means the day when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes back. Listen to what happens to those who went and said, we don't want this man to be king. Listen to the response. And then tell me how you feel. Verse 27. But bring here these enemies of mine, who did not want me to rule over them, and slaughter them in my presence. It's not really the things of story time with your kids, is it? Jesus told this parable about these people. They didn't want him to be king. Then he said, well, bring them here and kill them all. 
you kind of read this and you're like, this is harsh. Let me be very clear to you, this is not biblical wisdom on how to manage employees. They didn't listen to me, kill them. That's not the way that we respond. But as we hear this, it kind of feels a bit harsh. You're like, why is Jesus so harsh? I thought he was the God of love. I thought he was the God that loved us, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Why would he be so strong and slaughter him at this point? That just shows that we miss the significance of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and what rejecting him means. As I said earlier, we live in an age where we think it's okay not to respect our government. It's kind of highlighted. Yeah, we hate the government. Or, or, or our employers. It's kind of a sense of achievement when we undermine them at times. A little, journey, little um, bit of joy springs up in us when we kind of, ha, I showed them. Our parents, our leaders, our God. We're a nation that takes down the tall poppy, that doesn't want there to be anyone in authority over us. I want to make my choices in my life. Or if we, we do disrespect those people in leadership, sometimes we think, well, there shouldn't be any consequences. You know, if I just have a bit of a jibe at my employer or the government, I shouldn't be kind of pulled aside and be reprimanded for that. We have such a flat view of authority. And I want to say that view has real advantages in a world where there's no absolute truth. In a world that says, well, what you think is what you think and what I think is what I think, there's a real advantage to the best idea kind of winning. And we shouldn't just let this person say, well, this is what's true and everyone follow them because who says what they says is true? Well, there's no absolute truth. It's kind of fine to have that flat view of authority, but if there is a king who is in control of everything, who sustains life and sustains you right now, and he has said, well, I am away, being crowned as king of kings and lord of lords, this is how you were to live? And we come back and go, ah, it doesn't matter. I think I've got a better way to live. The reality is, when that life-giving king comes back, he has every right to say, fine, you don't want life? You won't get life. I'll give you exactly what you are asking for. Death. We miss the significance of rejecting this king. He gives you your very life. He's sustaining you at this moment. He is king of kings and lord of lords. No matter what you think of him, this is the reality that history points forward to. For those that reject this king, your future is death, judgment and hell. That's what we deserve. That's exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross. Think about it. If he died for us, he's saying that basically we deserve death, but that he took it for us. If you reject the gift of Jesus' death in our place, then the logical consequence is we should die. The strong words, the seeming harsh words, slap us back from the kind of fairy land we live in, thinking that, oh, it's okay to reject the king, and recognize for us, help us to realize You cannot reject this king and live. You cannot reject the king who gives you life and live. If you're here tonight and you haven't put yourself under the authority of Jesus, you haven't trusted in him and his death in your place, the Bible claims that that is your future. I'm not saying this to scare us into kind of, oh, okay, I must come to Jesus. I'm saying this is the reality. You reject the life-giving God, your future is no life. Hear the warning in this passage tonight. See the goodness of the King who gives beyond, who gives us this this gospel truth, who allows this gospel truth to to kind of bear fruit and who, who gives to those who don't deserve it 
things that the gospel has borne itself to, to, to rule alongside him forever. Hear this generous king tell you, the one who has died in your place, don't reject what I've given you. Don't think I won't come back. Don't think you can live however you want and it's going to be okay. Jesus is saying to you tonight, I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. And your only hope is to put your life in my hands. Jesus tells us this parable so we recognize a few home truths. Number one, he will be gone for some time. He will be gone for some time. Number two, on his return, he will evaluate people's faithfulness to him. Have we taken him at his word? Have we taken the gift of the gospel that he's given us and invested it in others? Number three, the faithful, those who trust his word and trust this king, will be rewarded exponentially. Life forever. No more sickness, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Not right here and now, but when he comes back. Number four, those who have opportunity for gospel investment need to use that opportunity. Number five, those who refuse to serve will be left with nothing but shame and judgment. Those who hide the gospel and, and cover it up and just hold on to it until that day he comes back maybe as some sort of insurance policy is really no Christianity at all. You don't trust the king. And number six, those who rebel against the king will receive the most severe judgment for that is what we deserve. How you live your life in this merry middle, who you live for and what you do with the good news, the gospel of Jesus, will dramatically change the way you live today. How you view the end changes how you live today. The question for you and I tonight, as we hear this parable from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, is this. Will you live faithful lives trusting in the King? Will you trust in His goodness? Will you invest in the gospel that He has shown you and seek to see in whatever way, shape or form, that gospel bear fruit across the world until the day He comes back? Will you live with Jesus as your king? Your eternity depends on that fact. Let me pray. Father God, tonight as we hear this word, this parable, there are so many things in it that just feel strong and harsh, but at the same time, so many things that cause us to say how amazingly generous and wonderful you are. We ask tonight that you would show us where we hide away the truth of the gospel, when we don't share this gospel deposit you've given us. We pray you would help us with wisdom to look at our lives and see how we might be free to share this news of Jesus with those around us. Father, we thank you for the joy that it is to partner with you, to point people to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has died in our place. Tonight, Lord, we also ask you would bring front and center the reality of the judgment that we deserve. That we would see clearly that none of us have treated you as king. Each of us 
deserve death. We ask tonight that you would amaze us with the reality that you've given us Jesus' death in our place. You would draw us to yourself and make tonight a night that we put Jesus first in our lives. Father, help us to faithfully trust in the work of your gospel to bring fruit of the kingdom that will last forever. We pray that you would bring us to your son, treating him as king and living for him. Not because of, um, not because of us trying to earn salvation, but because of the salvation you have offered us. Father, we ask that you would show us the reality of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in a way that captures our life from this day forward. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.